market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he's been leader, Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matcher, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at the paper, and with me this week is our Political Editor, Alistair Grant. Uh, Alistair, you've been away for three days um, while I've been slaving away at the chalk face of truth on my own, it should be said, given that Rachel is also on holiday. How was your trip, he says, without any bitterness? It was great, and I should point out that before we came on this podcast, Connor had been going on and on about how he'd not really been doing that much, and it'd been really quiet, so not, I wouldn't feel sorry for you're him You're not allowed to let the, uh, let the mask slip. <laughs> um, we, we'll obviously hear as well from Alex Brown later on, but we'll, we'll kick off with uh, the last thing that we were both at, apart from Holyrood today, which was uh, the SNP's Independence Convention uh, on Saturday in Caird Hall in Dundee. Um, it was quite the day, wasn't it? It, it was uh, built up to be um, potentially not very much and then turned out to be exactly that, not particularly much at all. Yeah, I don't think anyone expected going into this uh, independence convention or certainly anyone in the media expected fireworks, no. to be honest. <laughs> and there wasn't really, to be honest. Uh, so this was a long-awaited independence convention in Dundee where Hamza Youssef, the First Minister, was obviously going to set out to activists what his preferred strategy on independence was and he did do that but mm-hmm. it's fair to say it was ambiguous in his speech it caused a lot of confusion not least among journalists uh, in terms of what he actually meant by what he was saying so essentially in his speech he said that the SNP will use the next general election um, if they win that general election as a mandate for independence um, and I suppose there's always kind of questions about what it means in terms of how, what do you mean by winning the election? Mm. Do you mean it on vote share? Do you mean it on seats? There's all sorts of confusion about that. But I think essentially, cutting to the chase, after a long and probably fair to say quite tortured briefing afterwards with Hamza Yusuf's official spokesman and then with Hamza Yusuf himself, who came and spoke to journalists as well, the crux of the issue is that the SNP will fight the next general election in his words, page one, line one of the manifesto will be a vote for the SNP, a vote for Scotland to become independent. But they will essentially use that, a win in that election, to push for a second referendum. That is essentially what he's yeah. saying. So it's not that different from the way the SNP fought previous elections. And I think the other thing it's worth saying is, although Hamza Youssef has moved away from the de facto referendum plan as envisioned by Nicola Sturgeon, uh, which was, you know, she had this idea to fight the next general election as a de facto referendum, which would mean that the SNP would claim victory if they won 50% or, you know, more than 50% of the vote share, mm-hmm. which would have been an extraordinary achievement and mm-hmm. quite difficult to achieve. Hamza Youssef is saying that he will claim victory in that election if he wins the most amount of seats, which is substantially different. You could be talking about winning, uh, what is it, 29 seats? Yeah, you went under that. That's the scenario. So you could get a situation where the SNP actually lose quite a lot of seats, Mm -hmm. but still try to claim a victory. Uh, But they wouldn't 
be using that to then it's where you get into this kind of difficult terrain because a lot of his rhetoric made it sound like they were going to then try and negotiate independence straight away mm -hmm. but what he's actually saying is that they'll then push for a second referendum and he's also got this kind of line in his speech where he was like it's, it's the balls in Westminster's court you know they could either give us a referendum and we'll you know test the popularity of that proposition that way or they could just take the general election result as you know the result of a referendum the result of yeah. a as the desire for independence but mm -hmm. there's an acceptance among Hamza Yusuf's team that obviously the UK government is not going to take the result of the general election as a cue to start beginning independence negotiations so it really is just a strategy to push for that second referendum but they've just couched it in this language that makes it sound much more dramatic than that it's it's very fundamentalist sounding while being quite gradualist in reality I think that's the that's the the nub of the issue and <laughs> let's let's be quite honest here you know there was a room full of journalists watching that speech and then who spoke to um, the first minister's new official spokesperson kevin pringle you know about all of this and we got and you could tell that you had 10 15 journalists i think in that room all of whom had slightly different understandings of exactly what was in this speech um i think there's a there's a degree to which that seemed deliberate that this was you know, a speech designed to be everything to everyone all at once. It was designed to be fundamentalist enough to to kind of assuage the, the the feelings of you know the Angus Brendan McNeils and the and the Joanna Cherries of the fundamentalist wing, while also not spooking the Stuart McDonalds, you know, and the Nicholas Sturgeons once in a, once in a generation, you know, of the gradualist wing, um, while also trying to save the jobs of as many MPs as as humanly possible. I suppose that the, the question about that speech and his strategy is that it fundamentally still doesn't answer the question, what happens if Westminster say no? Because the strategy is if we win, which could be a, be a 20 seat loss, um, we'll ask for a second referendum. If they say no, we'll ask, we'll be ready to negotiate independence. It's up to the UK government to do what with that mandate what they will. The UK government could sit there, put their fingers in the ears and scream la 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 in the face of Hamza Yusuf for the foreseeable future. And there was no answer to that. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think you're right that it was a speech designed to be all things to all people. And I think you could tell by the confusion even among independence, sorry, SNP members themselves. You yeah. had Pete Wisher getting up on stage later on during that independence convention and effectively then advocating for the old de facto referendum idea of using vote share yeah. as the marker of when you win that general election on the de facto referendum terms, which is not what Hamza Yusuf was saying at all. You then had Ian Blackford, the former SNP Westminster leader, appearing on ITV border just the other day. And again, appeared completely confused or unable to say what constitutes a win in a general election, despite the fact that Hamza Yusuf had by that point made it quite clear that he's talking about the most number of seats. So the whole thing is just, there's an element of a mess to it, but you're right that he has deliberately being ambiguous in the sense to try and keep people happy and to try and keep his own options open in a way, I think, as well. And in terms of the not answering the fundamental question, I mean, his line on this is always that that's a question for the UK government and Westminster, you know, how can they continue to deny democracy? And that's been the SNP's line for a long time now. Yeah. The ball is in their court. And you actually sometimes even see quite prominent SNP figures on social media lambasting journalists for not 
asking the UK government this question, despite the fact that every single time a UK minister has ever come up to Scotland, they're asked. They are asked this question <laughs> ad nauseum by journalists. It's just something that is always asked. And their answer is always the same, that there, there is not the time effectively to use yeah. Theresa May's form of words on this. They're just not going to agree to it. And the SNP really can't get around that while uh, adhering to the strategy they have at the moment. And uh, to be honest, in any strategy, it's hard to know how you get around that if you're wanting to have a legally binding referendum. I think as well, going back to what you were saying there about the language, is that it, it's, it was, my, my, my feeling of it afterwards was that the language on it, and particularly the kind of what happened, what we are fighting this on in terms of what a win means, the language was vague enough to kind of be woolly and difficult to pin down, but specific enough to be politically kind of valuable after the general election result. You know, the reason why I think that manifesto is going to have line one, page one, you know, vote for Scotland to be an independent country, independent country, is so that after 2024, if the SNP win that, they've got a mandate for that, regardless of what they actually meant when announcing it on Saturday. I think the post-election reality of what these words mean could turn out to be quite different to what we were being told these words mean on Saturday. But I thought it was also interesting just to continue in this theme that when Hamza Youssef appeared on the Sunday show, uh, the BBC Scotland Sunday show at the weekend just there, he effectively seemed to admit, I think the question was put to him, you know, if you want to see how something how something will happen, just look at what's happened in the past. And the mm. UK government said no in the past. What makes you think that when you go to them this side, they'll answer any different? And his answer was effectively, I don't <laughs> expect them to answer any different. And uh, his main message at the weekend was that you need to grow support and you know get that momentum behind independence so it becomes something that the UK government can't refuse. And fundamentally, that is... The strategy yeah. and all this stuff is kind of a distraction. Yeah. The strategy is to get to a situation where you've got, you know, just to use a random example, 60% in the polls over a longer period of time. And you can say, you know, there's, this is, you know, quote unquote, the settled will of Scotland. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this argument goes and make it much more difficult for the UK government to refuse it rather than uh, an election mandate, which at the end of the day, particularly using first past the post Westminster election, I mean, you could be talking about winning that election on a third of the vote, really. There's a significant degree as well, I think, to this where um, it is about... We've talked a lot, actually, in recent weeks um, about pollsters suggesting that um, you know, independence support and support for the SNP are decoupling, i.e. You know, people who maybe are pro-independence are no longer naturally going towards the SNP as their default um, vote at a general election. I wonder as well whether or not the speech on Saturday was very much trying to recouple those two ideas in the mind of the public yeah. and to, you know, go into this next general election of going, if you believe in independence, you must vote SNP. Whereas I think over the last few months, that link has become weakened. And fundamentally, I think as well, voters are quite clever. They're cleverer than a lot of politicians give, give them credit for. I think a lot of people are looking at 2024 2025, whenever it happens, that general election as an opportunity to boot the Tories out to use the SNP in the Labour language. But in 2026, I think the link is still very firmly there between Scotland's best interests and the SNP. That's what the SNP have built their success on in recent years. Um, so for the SNP leadership to be linking so strongly the general election to the independence cause suggests that they're deeply, deeply worried about where 
their own party's kind of stances um, in the polls and that they could see it slipping even further. You know, we've, we've talked about it last week. It's not far away from Labour being ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's a conscious attempt to couple those concepts again. I mean, you're right, the polls have been showing that pro-independence people are, uh, to some extent, no longer guaranteed to vote for the SNP. That is something that will worry the party. And this is definitely an attempt to link those concepts yeah, again. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, pop down to Westminster, given we're talking about general election. Um, and uh, here's the latest from Alex Brown, our Westminster correspondent um, from the great city of London. Hello and welcome back to the Westminster Section podcast. My name is Alexander Brown and Boris Johnson is once again a big story because I did something really incredibly profoundly awful in a past life, meaning you, the listener, and I are doomed to discuss him in this strange monologue forever. This time it was an investigation by the Privileges Committee into allies of Boris Johnson. They found that they had ran a concerted campaign to undermine and attack Parliament, which is particularly interesting given how many of them were members of Vote Leave. Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadine Dorries, uh, you know, lots of people who are being paid to have their own television shows, Brendan Clark-Smith, their tweets and their comments where they had dismissed the report and said it was a kangaroo court and essentially deeply undermined the uh, Westminster, which they are supposed to be defending and advocates for, and they're now in trouble. What's difficult for Rishi Sunak is he will have to perhaps take a stance on this. He didn't previously, saying that he didn't want to influence anyone, which is a unique decision for the Prime Minister to take. And now with Lord Goldsmith, also among the names, who is a, a peer and a government minister, it seems like he's already bottled it and says he has full confidence in him. But when they're named in a report, it doesn't scream support for Parliament and its procedures when you're willing to just ride a roughshod over them and say, actually, I think he's fine regardless of what this committee, which I'm supposed to support, finds. So Boris Johnson probably sunning himself with all the money he's made from his talking tours and his columns. Imagine making money from a column. He's probably laughing away uh, as people go to bat for him, ending their own political futures, not that many Conservatives think they have one, um, all for the sake of a man who is never, ever coming back to Westminster. Elsewhere, in more shocking news, the Rwanda scheme was deemed unlawful by the Court of Appeal. This means that we are doomed once again to have Conservative MPs who know better say that lefty lawyers are blocking justice when... If you speak to MPs privately, very few in the Conservative Party actually think this is a real way of stopping the votes. It's just a way to look like they're stopping the votes. There is an, accept there is an acceptance that they can't do anything. But by doing this and by having things that at least show like they look like they're trying, they can go, well, you know, we put the procedure in and it was lefty lawyers. It was Europe that stopped us. Otherwise, we would have fixed it. No one's fixed it. No one's ever going to fix it. I've been reading about the migrant crisis. It's been a problem since I was a paper boy, which was a depressingly long time ago, dear listener. So, you know, the court's going to get politicised again. We probably won't get enemies of the people style front pages, but we won't get far off. Uh, and in the meantime, people coming to this country in search of a better life have no sense of support and no idea what will be what they'll be greeted with when they make it. So on that cheery note, uh, I'm off for a swim, and until next time, thank you for listening. So thank you very much for that, Alex. Uh, interesting developments today with the Rwanda policy, and obviously uh, the kind of shockingly um, unique privileges report as well that came out on uh, Thursday morning, uh, yesterday morning for you listening at home. Um, 
it is the last day of uh, Holyrood before recess. Um, we we won't be back in here, and it'll be the last steamy for a long time as well because of that until probably late August. Apologies if you heard some seeming parties going on outside the committee room we sat in earlier. Um, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't any substantive business today. Um, one of the running themes of the SNP leadership election was uh, highly protected marine areas, this uh, policy to impose restrictions on what can happen in inshore lands, uh, inshore seas even, um, going forward uh, to aim for 10% of uh, Scottish waters to be HPMAs by 2026. There was quite a big announcement, wasn't there, today from Mary McCallan, Cabinet Secretary for Net Zero. It's almost a tradition to have a big announcement on the last day before recess. Um, they, like to, they like to hurt us, don't they? It wouldn't be the last day of recess <laughs> without them squeezing out some kind of major announcement. Uh, and today we got just that with HPMAs. So as you're saying, this is the, a key part of the Butte House Agreement between the SNP and the Greens, that cooperation agreement they have uh, to make at least 10% of Scottish waters uh, highly protected marine areas, which would effectively ban fishing and kind of tightly control a lot of other activities as well. This is hugely controversial. I think we've spoken about it in this podcast before. Massive backlash from rural areas, massive backlash from the seafood sector. Mm. They launched a pretty, as far as I can tell, unprecedented campaign outside Holyrood. I think it was the last week of the week before, uh, where you had groups like the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, Salmon Scotland, all joining together uh, to basically make clear how much they do not want this policy to come in in its current form. They just hate it, mm. essentially. Mm. Uh, and there was all sorts of comparisons to the Highland clearances in terms of the effect it would have on coastal communities. The band Skipinish mm-hmm. had released a protest song about this uh, called The Clearances Again. So just a huge backlash, to be honest. Um, and I think the expectation was that the Scottish government was going to have to address this in some form, whether that was rowing back or coming up with a kind of form of language. And today they they've essentially scrapped the proposals in their current form. I mean, we can kind of go into whether they have yeah. actually scrapped it, but they, in their current form, as they were set out in the consultation document, they have been scrapped. So there's not going to be HPMAs put in place by 2026, which I think was the current target. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to rethink key parts of what the policy means. I think they said uh, you were at the briefing just after First Minister's questions in which the phrase the drawing board was used. Yeah. So there's this this real sense that they're going to take take another look at these plans and when they do come back, they might look quite different. Absolutely. I think talking to government sources after this today um, sounds like there's a, an admission of, of almost guilt that they failed to um, sell and communicate these this policy initially and that they are in this position now where, you know, we as journalists, certainly my initial... It, it kind of response to it was well they're just trying to you know get get some time you know six weeks six months is enough for a bit of pr to be done and to come back with effectively the same policies with everyone on board but that doesn't seem like that's going to be quite the case um what it appears is going to happen is as you alluded to um it will be radically different or it certainly will be different to to the proposals that we we saw earlier on in the year that have been scrapped and that what will come back will be a basically a complete re look at the the idea of marine protected areas. And I think it's probably likely that we'll see the impact on local fishermen, people going about their days, you know, lobster, seafood fishermen, people who go out and do 
trawling in, in off the coast of wherever they live, whatever. You know, these people who live and work in the communities where these highly protected marine areas are planned to go might end up basically excluded from these HPMAs and that they'll be allowed to continue working as they do. But more more invasive types of, you know, blue agriculture, you know, cable laying, commercial things like that, that go on, um, that might be part of um, a future proposal. What is interesting about all of this, of course, is that, you know, it's a total failure, again, of a green-led policy within the government. It follows DRS. And it, you question now the ability of government to sell these policies to the Scottish public. Yeah. I mean, I think the Scottish Greens will be embarrassed by this, you know, no matter what they say in public. Mm. Uh, it comes hot in the heels of the deposit return scheme, which actually wasn't part or wasn't named as part of the Butte House Agreement in those initial documents that were published in 2021 when that cooperation deal was signed, but became kind of synonymous with the Greens yeah. because Lorna Slater led it uh, as one of the Green Ministers. So the deposit return scheme went through all these problems, had a kind of similar process in which there was a huge backlash and was then kind of completely uh, stymied in a way. Uh, and now we've had, yeah, the highly protected marine areas, which have become a kind of a second major policy to hit the buffers. Yeah. And I think there will be a lot of embarrassment there. It's also interesting, on a, on a separate note, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Fergus Ewing after all of this, given that obviously his mother died last week, um, Winnie Ewing. Um, he was on the verge of being booted out of the party um, for at least a little bit, having been suspended for a little bit. Part of that reason was him ripping up the consultation document of the HPMA proposals in Parliament of only about a month ago, which is something that the government not necessarily literally did, but figuratively did in the chamber today from, from Myron McCallum. It'd be interesting to see how the government go forward. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to other internal party issues, which is the last thing we'll talk about before um, we leave you for a summer of, uh, of uh, no Holyrood. And that is um, Douglas Ross's uh, most latest reshuffle of his front bench. Um, Alistair, you were off. Um, so you missed the joys of of, of covering this, but um, long and short of it, two of potential the potential top agitators is be- probably the best way of putting it. And um, within the Conservatives, um, Stephen Kerr, who was the Education spokesperson, and Jamie Green, who was the Justice spokesperson, um, also both considered as having ambitions for the top job within the Scottish Conservatives. And um, they were sacked, if you believe the the spin from the Conservative Party. Um, Stephen Kerr was mutually agreed to step down um, and take on fighting for, an, for a, a new seat at the general election, um, Angus and Perthshire Glens. Um, and you also had Morris Golden, who led on the topic of the DRS, led a lot of the Tory attacks on the DRS, also not particularly well-liked by the leadership of the Scottish Tories at the minute, um, who has also been left without a job. In place of those guys, you've got Russell Finlay, Again, another person that many people within the party look at as potential successor to Douglas Ross, taking over Jamie Green's job as justice spokesperson, and also Douglas Lumsden, a, a close ally, I think, of uh, Douglas Ross, taking over the net zero job, and Liam Kerr, no relation as far as I'm aware to Stephen Kerr, moving into um, the education job that Stephen Kerr vacated. Um, the The issue, though, about all of this reshuffling is that it's effectively stirred up a lot of anger towards Douglas Ross that had seemingly ebbed away over the last few months. Yeah, I think the Jamie Green situation particularly, uh, 
Jamie Green was among three Tory MSPs to back the gender recognition reforms that went through the Scottish Parliament before Christmas. Uh, that was a free vote, but this now seems to be getting cited is one of the reasons why he's mm -hmm. being removed from the front bench. Uh, I think the phrase in, in some of the reports was that he was kind of considered the poster boy of arguing for uh, that gender recognition legislation. I think he'd written to the UK government, asked them not to challenge it in court. Uh, so he'd obviously annoyed the leadership to that extent. It seems an unusual move in the sense that Jamie Green is quite a popular MSP yeah. and also has a rare ability to reach across party lines, yeah. which in Scottish politics is becoming vanishingly rare. Very much of the Ruth Davidson mould. Yeah, and he's got kind of friends, contacts across the political divide. But uh, clearly, even though that's a free vote, it's seen as something that the, the leadership of you know, behind the scenes mutterings are correct. Uh, we're annoyed about and have kind of come for revenge on. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to reflect on, I think, as well, when you look at the, uh, whether how much this reshuffle is about settling personal scores versus getting the best people in the job. The, the spin that we got, um, which you, you've alluded to, was that this was all about promoting some of the 2021 intake of Holyrood MSPs to the bigger jobs, i.e. Russell and Finlay and um, Douglas Lumsden. Um, and as you mentioned, the gender recognition being the main reason for Jamie Green's demotion. But Sandish Gulhani, the health spokesperson, voted for the gender recognition reforms and has kept his job, probably one of the most plumb jobs within um, any opposition bench to lead, lead that um, at, the, at the moment. It just doesn't ring true. And if it, it does ring true, it's very petty. I suppose he wasn't, Sandish Gulhani probably wasn't outspoken on it in the same way and didn't make moves like mm. writing to the UK government. Uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly if something is a free vote, it should remain a free vote. Uh, so it's an interesting development. And I think, you know, there was those reports back in October. People might remember that there were moves against Douglas Ross. Yeah. Uh, so there is some bad blood existing within that parliamentary group. Uh, I don't think Douglas Ross is at risk at the moment. Perhaps I'm wrong. That'll be one of the stories of the <laughs> summer. Can't really see it happening purely because some of those figures... Uh, you've mentioned don't seem to want that job. There's a lot of, uh, there's a perception that's maybe a bit of a poison chalice. Um, so yeah, I can't see people moving against them at the moment, but there's no doubt that there are people who are not happy. I, there's a couple of MSPs I've spoken to, well, actually more than a couple of Tory MSPs that I've spoken to over the last few months about potential coups, if you like, against Douglas Ross. Um, and every time I've jokingly gone to them, it's like, oh, do you, do you fancy a, a run at the top job? The response has been, very short, very to the point, and two words, one of which I can't say on, on our podcast, but begins with the letter F. The second word is always that. I think that demonstrates the unlikelihood of a potential move this side, certainly, of the general election. Having said that, I'm sure the opportunity arose. Yes, there's a few of them that I'm sure would go for it in any case. Um, thank you very much, Alistair, for joining us this week. Thank you very much, Alex, as well, for your dispatch from uh, Westminster. Thank you very much at home as well for listening to uh, the steamy over the last parliamentary session we will be taking a break over recess and um, but we will be back when Holyrood returns later this year we hope you have a lovely summer thank you very much for listening and see you soon bye-bye